Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Barry Regal, and you're listening to Sorry Partner. Hello and welcome to Sorry Partner, a weekly podcast about bridge and all things interesting to bridge players, brought to you by bridge partners and friends, Catherine Harris and Jocelyn Starts. On today's program, we chat with Barry Regal about partnership compatibility, his thoughts on talking and not talking, and the importance of good communication overall, as well as hearing his top tip for developing players. But first, let's kibitz. Hi, Jocelyn. Hi, Catherine. How are you doing? I'm great, thanks. How's your week been? It's been okay. I did a silly thing at the table the other day. You know, opponents bid and raised. And not to be someone who ever wants to let them play, just bid and raise. I doubled. I didn't have the right hand to double. And it really backfired. So I may have learned a little bit of a lesson about when it's not necessarily such a great idea to uh, double in that situation, i.e. you really need to have the other suits. (laughs) Oops. I I just feel like I've been wrestling with this since the first lesson I ever took, you know, and every time I feel like I've got the hang of it, I go and double something and, and people... They go and they make. But then, look, I'll, I'll cheer you up by reminding you that we had a really great hand this week. We played against two absolute world champions, and I think they thought they had the measure of us, and they bid four hearts, and we took them off three. So, yes, that was great. It felt very validating. Absolutely. You know, 86%, I'll take any day of the week, but against world champions, thank you very much. Hey, so Jocelyn, I've got a letter for you. Now, it's a long letter. Would you like me to read it out? Oh, absolutely. Bring it on. 
Okay, so we've asked people to send in their bridge stories to us, and this is a story from Stephen in Melbourne, Australia, and it's a long letter, so stay with us. Oh, and I should say there is some profanity, so if that's not your cup of tea, now is the time to mute your listening device. Anyway, here we go. So Stephen writes, I have a friend who survived a very bad car accident many years ago. However, he'd been left with some residual problems, including some brain damage, some mobility and fine motor skill issues, and some, let's call it, social awkwardness. In fact, pre-accident, he was also slightly socially unaware and inappropriate at times. But I think post-accident, this personality trait has become more acute. But he does have a great sense of humor and he loves to laugh with you and even more so at himself. Anyway, I agreed to bring him along to our bridge club one afternoon. As the afternoon progressed and due to his injuries, his legs started to cramp up. So he asked if anyone would mind if he stood up to play a few hands, which was immediately agreed to by everyone at the table. No problems. But shortly thereafter, his other side effect kicked in and he started thinking and mumbling out loud. He would say things like, I've got nine tricks. Where's the tenth one coming from? <laughs> Oops. <laughs> if I win with the jack, I'll make the contract, etc. Quite often he would claim prematurely and then find the opponents would put down two forgotten trump cards or an unplayed ace that was going to win a trick. As this scenario progressed, he became agitated, embarrassed, and frustrated with himself and would then mutter the odd expletive, always to himself but unconsciously loud enough to be over the opposition. <laughs> this drew the odd disapproving look from some of the more conservative players that day, but no one really complained. Suddenly a new East-West pair arrived at our table, two elderly and elegantly dressed ladies with an air of politeness and breeding like that of retired English grammar school headmistresses. <laughs> After introductions, I explained the reason for his standing up while playing <laughs> and I asked them to give him some latitude for his mumblings and muttering. <laughs> In the final board, as he won the ninth trick using his last trump, he announced rather excitedly, yes, I'll claim the rest, only to see the opposition calmly place the as yet unplayed queen of trumps on table with the firm response of, excuse me, but no, you won't. Without a thought or any real awareness to his present situation and clearly distracted by the missing queen, he suddenly cursed rather loudly, you fucking bitch, I thought you had been played. <laughs> <laughs> the lady sitting east holding the queen clearly only heard the first three words and assumed his tirade was directed at her rather than at the forgotten queen of chops. The blood drained <laughs> from her face. Her eyes became icy cold, and next thing I saw, Madam East jumped up yelling and screaming, Director, Director, and then, How dare you? I've never been so insulted in my life. Such language. I demand that he be thrown out of here immediately. Understanding the bigger picture, I totally lost control and burst out laughing at the scene unfolding before <laughs> me. I was crying with laughter, which did not sit well with our opposition. It took some time to calm her down and even longer to convince her that what she heard was not intended to be directed at her. And whilst I was still laughing so much, I had tears running down my face and my jaw was aching. I promised Madame East that I would never bring him back to the club again. To this day, I still get the giggles whenever I see her. <laughs> That's 
hilarious. Oh my goodness. I know. I know. know. It is really hard sometimes to control yourself at the table. Oh my God. I had a friend who I don't think her cursing was as inadvertent and innocent as Steve's partner. Uh, She was getting so annoyed with a partner that she was playing with who was being very obnoxious and patronizing that she finally brandished I don't know if it was the the redouble card or something. She said, do you know what this is? This is the fuck you card. (laughs) And he was so taken aback. He didn't call the director. And I think the opponents were laughing (laughs) because it was pretty funny. So, yeah, the fuck you card, I think, is a good one. That's hilarious. If you have any funny stories about cursing at the bridge table or anything else, send them into sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com and maybe we'll read them out. We'd love to hear from you in any event. Coming up next, our interview with Barry Regal. One of Barry Regal's earliest bridge memories was watching a woman in a cat suit play at the Curzon House Club in London. What better origin story for a bridge legend? He has since gone on to wear many different bridge hats, champion player, author, journalist, commentator, mentor. We began our interview by asking him how he fell in love with the game. When I went to high school uh, at the age of 12, my plan was to be world-class at something. That wasn't too much of an ambitious task, I thought. And my my first thought was table tennis, but I discovered I really couldn't and still can't smash the ball. And that meant that was out. I did play chess competently. Um, I joined the chess club and about a couple of weeks after the start of the term, the master in charge of chess lined up the best 12 to play against the number one board for the school. He played us all blindfold simultaneous and beat us all. And I realized that I wasn't going to be a world champion at chess. So then I switch my attention to bridge. And I had learned the rules of the game from my older brother a few weeks previously. And I was in the the math set where the math master ran the bridge club three days a week. And so I started playing bridge during those lunch times, got absolutely hooked. And for the next six years, It was a constant struggle between myself and my teachers as to whether I was majoring in bridge or in academic studies. And I believe that I won out on that front. And by the time that I'd finished high school, I was already a relatively experienced bridge player, uh, certainly for somebody my age. So that was how I got into the game. And then from that point onwards, it was university studies and bridge in roughly equal doses, although my teachers might think there was more bridge than academics. And then I went and became an accountant and bridge took a backseat for a couple of years while I was qualifying. But after that, I played as much as I could while still having a full-time job. And what is it about the, the game that really that, that grabbed your attention, that made you love it so much? It's hard to say whether I felt this way precisely at the time. But now the aspect of the game that intrigues me is that bridge is a game of imperfect information. You can only see part of the picture at any one time, although the auction 
And as the play advances, the, the play of the cards gives you more information. So perfection is always out of reach. When and if you do get it right, it's incredibly satisfying. But for the most part, as Bob Hammond said, the best play lousy and the rest play worse. So um, <laughs> that means that my imperfections, they're just uh, like everybody else's. We don't get it right all the time. I do my best. I wish I could be as tolerant of my partner's imperfections as I am of my own. I have to say, I love the columns that you write on Bridge Winners because you are always putting out there the search for, for perfection. And I, I love that you put yourself also on a very equal footing with, with all bridge players in the search for the answers. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. My view about the game is that not only does it give me enormous satisfaction as well as a fair amount of frustration, but also for the last more than 25 years, it's been almost my sole source of income. I've been able to make a living out of doing something that I enjoy. And the very least that I can do is to try to return the favor in the first place by, without fail, always answering as best I can anybody who asks me a question about the game where they are genuinely interested in learning, no matter how simple that question is, I can never give anybody a short answer, even to a short question. But also I'd like to try and improve everybody's ability to play the game. So I will always try and give people what I consider to be best practice and not worry about the idea that one day they may be able to implement those measures against me. It's a very, very small price to pay. And if I can leave the world playing bridge slightly better, then I'm giving back just a little to a game that's given me an enormous amount. What do you think your, your particular strength is, Barry? Well, I have a very good memory. I'm extremely obsessive about reading about the game. I suspect over the course of the last... 30 years that there are fewer than 10 people in the world who have read as much about the game and written as much about the game in total as I. I don't think of myself as being an outstanding natural player, but I am capable of remembering what I read and extrapolating from that to other situations. And when it comes to writing, I'm also uh, very good about taking a deal that comes up at the table and spotting the possibilities to make it into column material. I don't believe that I'm a great stylist by any means, but I've developed a workmanlike approach to that aspect of the game. I have a decent sense of humor, so as it doesn't involve my own imperfections. So then sort of switching to the other side, what do you think your weakness is as a player, if you don't mind me asking? Um, very much one of temperaments. I take the game too seriously. I get stressed. I don't necessarily bring the best out of my partner. And there are times, it may not be more than once a year or so, where I will be able to identify afterwards that I have not played as well as I could because I couldn't clear my mind from the things that had gone on before. I mean, it, it's not something that I'm happy with, the variation between when I play well and when I play badly is much larger than I would like. 
I wish that I had a way that I could fix it, but I suspect it's only something that you could sort of keep under control. Have you tried any anything to to address it or deal with it? You, you know, um, I did work with a bridge psychologist in my regular partnership in the UK towards the end of the 1980s. I liked that a lot, found that very helpful. What did they suggest? Well, it's, it's more about talking with your partner about what are the things that uh, you like or what upsets you. And I played with the same person in the U.S. for almost 10 years now, and we're very good friends, and we're close enough that we can discuss those things and try not to do the things that upset our partners. And for the most part, he works hard not to do them. But unfortunately, it's just not within his power. It's like the scorpion. It's in his nature. So that when I when I say to him after the game, why were you talking about these hands when our rule is that we don't discuss hands at the table? And he says, but I only did it once. Yes, and your point is. <laughs> He's just like the scorpion. Yes, yes. <laughs> we all are probably to a greater or lesser degree. That's what I admire so much about Bob Hammond and... There are some other people who are capable of sublimating their ego to the betterment of the partnership. And that's a really great skill. And I wish I had it and I don't. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So turning to your non-bridge life, are there any aspects or experiences that have impacted how you play bridge and perhaps how you approach this particular temperament challenge? An interesting question. Um, I think probably the thing that's most influenced how I play was meeting my wife. Sue and I first met uh, 35 years ago at a world championship, my first, 1986, in Bal Harbor. And you know how people say when they meet somebody, they instantly decide that's the person I'm going to marry. Well, that was the case when I met Sue, although I have no idea why that would be. We became very friendly when she moved from the States to the UK for work, nothing to do with me, a year later. 
and we uh, socialized but didn't go out for three or four years. I'd like to say, and there is actually a fair amount of truth to it, that we didn't start dating until she won her first world championship. And I mean, technically that happens to be true, but it wasn't really the linking factor there. Um, so back in about 91, 92, we started going out and then about two or three years later, my professional career sorted itself out in such a way that I could move to the States and we'd been together ever since 1994. And I'm sure that being with Sue has changed my life and changed my approach to Bridge. Just made me a, maybe not a better person, but a happier person and an easier person to play Bridge with. So that's probably the single most uh, influential issue, I would say. That's lovely. Does it affect your other partnerships? In that people often say that a bridge partnership is like a marriage. The skills that you develop in a marriage, does, does that affect the way that you, you, you play with other people? Yes, sir. you would certainly, uh, you might compare. In, in the time that I've been in the States, I've had two long partnerships. And coincidentally, between partner number one and partner number two, those two people played bridge together for a long period of time as well. So this is a group of three of us, all New Yorkers, all of us in the age bracket, 63 to 70 or so, and we're all good friends. And there's certain aspects of the bridge partnership that uh, I'm sure outsiders would look at and say in terms of my current partnership that we behave like a married couple. I don't think that was true of my the previous partnership simply because Jeff, my, my first partner, was such a, a quiet, softly spoken person that we were able to keep our, our friendship not like the traditional husband and wife partnership, whereas Glenn and my partnership probably has more features in terms of a marriage than either of us would like to admit. <laughs> it's very funny. <laughs> So what's your biggest challenge with uh, with Glenn? Glenn loves to talk. I love to talk, as you can tell, but not at the bridge table when I'm playing bridge. And my attempts to keep him quiet, always unsuccessful, are the biggest interruption of my flow of concentration and thoughts. He doesn't talk during the hand, he talks after the hand, but it impacts the next deal. What would you think he'd say about you? What are the things that you do that, that get under his skin? I think he'd say with some accuracy that I'm a miserable SOB and that I'm not willing to talk about the hands when he wants to and that interrupts his flow and that I stop him talking when he's trying to have fun with the opponents simply because I think that makes him play bridge worse. So, yes, um, yes, just generally being miserable and it would be absolutely true that even when we're in a match that we're winning comfortably, I'd still rather not make chit-chat with the opponents if I can, just so that I can preserve my concentration. Plenty of time to talk afterwards. How do you like playing online bridge then from that point of view where there, where there aren't those kinds of interruptions? I love it. Possible? You I love, love it. it. And, and, one of the aspects of the game that has really surprised me is that even though I can't see my partner and opponents, I still feel like I have very good 
table presence from the tempo at the table. And that's one of the aspects of the game that I was slow to buy into because I think originally I believed that bridge was a game of technique and not of instinct. And I totally changed my mind on that. I always follow my instinct if I get a strong enough read because if I don't and I find that I was wrong and that I should have done, it upsets me a lot. Whereas if I follow my instinct and I'm wrong, I can always put it down to something else. <laughs> but, you know, it, it, there are times I play regularly with the same client, um, like three or four times a week perhaps. And I will say to her at the end of the hand, you know, I thought that you were thinking about opening the bidding, and I can't explain why I thought that because you didn't pause for more than three or four seconds. And yet, at the time, those vibrations had transmitted themselves to me just from the tempo. And, you know, this is a partner who is scrupulously ethical and absolutely would never pause or do anything and, and might not even be aware of the fact that she had paused. But it is really surprising to me how much information there is to be extracted from tempo at the tables on BBO. I'm sure that there is a way to set it up so that this doesn't happen. But in the casual game, frankly, it's probably not worth it for BBO even to think about doing anything. Barry, you've played all over the world. Have you noticed any regional differences in the way that the game is played? Well, the US and perhaps France are somewhat hidebound when it comes to innovations in bidding and play. Australia, the UK are much more relaxed about uh, system methods, uh, much more open to new ideas. And uh, it's it's fascinating to, to me to see that in Australia, where I do play as often as I can, that everything basically is allowed the... The people who play at the table, even if they're not good players, have not been taught that they should be afraid of innovation. So they innovate themselves and they don't feel at all under pressure if they play against methods they don't know. They have general blanket rules that they're given as to what you should do if your opponents make artificial calls and they just follow it. They don't always get good results, but it doesn't occur to them to say, well, they got a good result against me, so let's stop them playing that method. Whereas in the U.S., it's still unfortunately the case that the powers that be regulate systems, don't let people play what they want, and encourage an environment where uh, novelty methods are not encouraged and indeed perhaps actually banned. And I don't like that. Well, why don't you like it? Because, for example, when I'm playing with a client, they can be put in a situation where they don't know what the rules are. And so they get bad results when they play against it. So they don't like it. And it's a vicious cycle. It would be better to relax that a little bit, I think. Not all the way, perhaps, but a little. So then do you find yourself adapting your systems or the way that you play because you you know that, you know, in Australia, they're more relaxed, for example, or maybe in, in Europe, they're not? Or For the most part, when I travel... I'm actually not playing as opposed to working. When I go to Australia, for example, most of the time it's either been doing some teaching and lecturing, but for the most part it's been writing the daily bulletins, which is something that I'd love to do. And so I do play a little, um, but more more just to make up a team rather than to play 
regularly. And when I do play, I must admit, I play standard methods just because it's easier. Yeah. Do you find that you can categorize bridge players or perhaps just focusing on your your students? Because you hear about or people tend to define themselves, I'm a scientist or industrialist, or I'm aggressive, or I'm very disciplined. And I'm wondering how how seriously you take those kinds of categories. For the most part, I would say that the people that I play bridge with tend to be uh, slightly older people, all of whom probably have come to bridge relatively late in their life. They vary enormously. There is at least one person who is a psycho killer, and <laughs> she does not regard Bridge as anything other than a relaxation from work. But she came to bed, and it was tell her that in every partnership there ought to be a catcher and a pitcher, and it's my job to be the pitcher and your job to be the catcher and not the other way around. Uh, another one, one of my regular partners, is it's sort of middle of the road in terms of aggression and restraint, except that there are certain situations where I know that she would be bidding on hands that I would never, it would never occur to me to bid. So I build that into my calculations. And then I have one young client who's just out of the, the junior game, who's actually, in a sense, the most fun to play with. And he is certainly on the aggressive side, but what I try to teach him is, this is what you should do if you're disciplined. You don't have to do it, but you have to understand that this is what the disciplined action would be. Can you give us an example of that? Well, uh, let's see, preempting. <laughs> I know it's an easy one to be aggressive or, or restrained. I started life in the UK where preempts are very aggressive over the years as I've got older. I've really come to appreciate the idea that it would be nice to have my bid and to be able to trust my partner to have their bid. But uh, not everybody feels the same way. So you just have to uh, judge uh, where exactly you want to be on the spectrum. You have to know your partner's foibles. The psycho killer, for example, I know that if the auction goes a no trump on my right and I pass and the next hand passes, she is going to bid almost no matter what her 13 cards look like. And I build that into my calculations as well. It's, well, she thinks, uh, she thinks you have a good hand. Mm. Well, it's more <laughs> that she's being taught that letting the opponents play one no trump is a bad idea. And since she had one more card than the 12 she promised when she picked her hand up, that means that she's entitled to bid. When you are teaching over a long period of time a particular student, are there recognizable stages and progressions that you can expect that a student, and I'm only asking for a friend. Yes. <laughs> okay, so I have one partner that I've started to play with about less than a year ago. Really extremely nice. She had been taught pretty well before, but maybe not learning as regularly she was playing amongst friends and maybe some of the time she wasn't uh, playing full out. So I get to teach her a bunch of stuff and she's very receptive and I tell her she can make any mistake that she wants once 
And after that, when we've learned what the right thing to do in a particular situation is, I'm not expecting you to get it right the second time, but at least to understand the issues that came up the first time so that she can bring that to bear on what she does the next time out. And so the last time we played on, on Wednesday, two days ago, she played extremely well, but there were about four hands one of which where I was had the problem, three where she did, where we had exactly the same concept coming up in defense, namely that she was on lead. She had to decide whether to get active or passive on defense. And in some of the cases, the information was there. And in some cases, it really was a toss-up as to what to do. So we went through the hands afterwards and tried to identify what the, what the factors were that should help her with that decision the next time. And it's such a, a wide subject. You can't say, because of this, you should do that, but more along the lines of, okay, so on one example, we know Declara has seven cards in the red suits, which means they have six cards in the black suits, and Dummy has four spades and two clubs. So Declara has six cards in the black suit, and Dummy has six cards in the black suit, there is no way that they can ever discard any of the losers on dummies' cards because if Declara has four spades and two clubs, that's what dummy has. If Declara has three spades and three clubs, well, they can maybe get a spade away, but they'll still be left with two clubs. So this is a position where you can guarantee that you don't need to go active in trying to set up winners. Declare was playing in diamonds. We cashed our two heart winners. My partner was on lead. She knew Declare had exactly five diamonds and exactly two hearts from the play thus far. And Dummy had specifically, it had the King 10 fourth of spades and the Doubleton King Jack of clubs. And there were enough trumps in Dummy that all that she had to think about was if she exited with a trump, we'd get whatever winners we had in the black suit. And you didn't need to lead one of those suits because all that could happen would be that you'd give Declara more information or solve a guess for Declara. Well, that's very interesting. Are there any conventions that you just think are a waste of time or that are overrated? There is a convention that's popular in the US, which is not the worst convention you ever come across, but playing what's called mirror doubles, meaning when the opponents come in over a no-trump, you use double as a transfer, is, in my opinion, a bad idea because it's much better to have takeout doubles available when the opponent's bidder shoot naturally and transferring the declarership is much less important than maximizing the number of hands that you can come in on facing your partner. I also was reading recently you don't care for weak jump shifts out of competition. Ah, you are absolutely right. <laughs> I was Born in the UK, played all my early bridge there, and I think strong jump shifts are a very useful way to reach your the best games and the best slams. In competition, I can understand not doing it, but jumps by past hands should never, ever be weak because if you have a hand where you want to make a weak jump and you're a past hand, then you should have bid already. And if you don't have a suit that's good enough, then you don't have a suit that's good enough to make a weak jump. So, Barry, just to conclude, can you share with us the best bridge advice or best bridge tip that you've ever been given? About 20 years ago, I went to a junior camp working on the bulletin 
in California. And John Mohan came in and gave a talk to the juniors, during which he said something that is so obvious that I couldn't believe that I had never thought about it specifically. He said, there is no suit at Bridge where it will benefit you to be the person who leads it as opposed to having the opponents play that suit for you. You may break even, but you can never, ever gain by leading it as opposed to making the opponents lead that suit for you. Essentially, the logic is if you're the last person to play on the trick, you have more flexibility than if you're the first person to play on the trick. And and I know it sounds incredibly obvious. It wasn't obvious to me at the time until I thought about it. And so I'm guessing it wasn't obvious to the people who were listening to it. But that, that thought about always try and make the opponents lead the suits for you, assuming that you don't have a rush to set up a discard for yourself, to throw away something, to draw trumps, whatever it might be. In most situations, you will do better by making the opponents lead suits for you rather than lead them yourself. That's terrific. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. My pleasure. And that's the show. Thanks to Barry Regal, Rubina Astley, Catherine Girardot, Dan Graboy, Theo Hassan, and Alex Tyers. Send your bridge stories and comments to sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. But be nice, or we'll call the director. Until next week, play well. May all your finesses be on side. And remember, Barry says, in most situations, you'll do better when you can make the opponents lead suits for you rather than leading them yourself. Thank you, partner. Thank you, partner. Bye. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.